Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Man, I'm going to ask if you would to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4. That's where we're going to be, at least to begin with. I love a good mystery. When I was a child, I loved reading the Encyclopedia Brown stories. Some of you will remember those. Fantastic little uh, little work that had a little boy who kind of knew everything and remembered everything, and he solved mysteries. Read the Boxcar Children. As a teenager and adult, I read the Sherlock uh, Holmes mysteries. And I love watching mystery movies and reading mystery books because mysteries explore the question, why? Why is it that this event would take place? Or why is it that this circumstance would happen? Or who is it that accomplished this particular crime or this particular issue? Well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to use a little bit of creativity in your listening imagination as we open up the text of Scripture in this particular passage. I'm going to ask you to ask the question, why? The, the message title is A Message to a Wicked Nation. Pictures of Sin and Judgment. In chapter 4 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes in verse 19... My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtain in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish." They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. To the heavens, they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. All the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation. Yet I will not make a full end. For this earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. The noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter the thickets, they climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken and no man dwells in them. And you, old desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you, they seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. Say, Pastor, could you not have picked a more encouraging passage of Scripture to read? Well, quite frankly, there are not a lot of encouraging passages to read in the book of Jeremiah. First couple of weeks as we worked through this series, 
began with an introduction, and we looked last week at Jeremiah's salvation and his call to ministry. Be quite honest, after that, much of the rest of the book is dedicated to messages about judgment and about God's justice and about the wickedness that was so prevalent among the people of Judah and the people of Israel. What I'd like us to do is explore three responses that we can give to these messages and these pictures of judgment and sin. The first is this, witness the fury and the fullness of God's judgment. One of the reasons I chose to read that section of Scripture is because it is one of the most poignant pictures of God's absolute and consistent judgment that you're ever going to find in any any of the pages of Scripture. It, it gives us a clue as to the heart of Jeremiah. Notice he begins with his anguish, his tears, his crying. This passage, among other passages, are one of the reasons that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And when you continue to read God's statement about what he's going to do to Judah and to Israel as a result of their sin and wickedness, there is no wonder that Jeremiah wept. There's no wonder that Jeremiah shed tears. There's no wonder that he was in anguish. Because when we see the fullness and the fury of God's righteous and holy judgment, then it should cause us to be concerned. It should cause us to weep. It should cause us to cry out to God for His mercy. As you move on into the text, uh, you look at verse 23. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, in verse 2, the earth was without form and void. And then what did God do in Genesis 1? God spoke everything into creation. He, 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 Through His Word, He let there be land, and let there be light, and let there be a sky, and let there be birds, and let there be fish and animals and man. And then, all the way in the book of Jeremiah, God issues not a statement of creation, but a statement of uncreation. In other words, this judgment is going to be so full, this judgment is going to be so full of fury and wrath, that it will seem like creation is turning in on itself. That imagery is all throughout this particular passage. If you see verse 24, I looked on the mountains and behold they were quaking. Instead of rising up and existing out of nothing, as God spoke into existence in Genesis 1, they are shaking and they are quaking. Notice the rest, the hills are moving to and fro. Verse 25, behold there was no man. God spoke man. God breathed the breath of life into Adam in Genesis 1. He he formed Eve in Genesis 2. And yet, in Jeremiah 4, there is no man. The birds have left. The fruitful land was a desert. Cities were laid in ruins and before the Lord and before His fierce anger. What in the world would cause God to speak out against the people He loved and cared about and said, this is what your judgment is going to be like? Moreover, this message was given by Jeremiah during a time of relative prosperity and relative spiritual Reformation. Jeremiah's preaching this series of messages through at least chapter 7. He's preaching during the reign of Josiah, the last good king of the people of Judah. He engaged in a time of spiritual formation. When he was eight, he began to rule. When he was a teenager, the priests found a copy of the law that had been set aside, that had been rejected and abandoned. They found a copy of the law. They brought it to Josiah. They read to Josiah. And Josiah, as a teenager, tore his robes and cried out to God for his mercy 
mercy on the people who had rejected God's law. And he led the nation into a time of spiritual reformation where they put away the idols, where they returned to worship at the temple. At least outwardly they returned to worship at the temple. And Jeremiah is preaching and teaching this message in a day and age when it looked like the people of Judah were doing the right things. And he called down and he said, God's judgment is going to be furious and it's going to be full and it's going to be complete. A picture of the day of the Lord, a picture of God's judgment. Folks, we need to witness the fury and the fullness of God's judgment. We need to take note of that. Because folks, God will not be mocked. God will not be ignored. God will not be abandoned and allow us to get by with it without judgment. And here's where I'm going to ask you to use a little bit of your creative imagination. When we witness the fury and fullness of God's judgment, we need to ask ourselves, why? Why is it that God would give this terrible message to this young prophet so that he would preach to a people that God knew wouldn't listen? Well, the reason is, if you go back to chapter 2, the people of Israel were completely wicked. The people of Judah that that Jeremiah is preaching to had failed God miserably. So the second response that we need is to heed the warnings of the pictures of perversity and idolatry that we see in the text. In chapter 2, and I'm not going to read all of this, but I do want to read a few select verses. In chapter 2, this is the build-up to why God is going to judge so furiously in chapter 4. Notice this, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt, and disaster came upon them. And then verse 5, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They didn't say, where's the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits and a land of drought and deep darkness and a land that none passes through? He says, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and all these good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination." Chapter 2, there are actually 10 specific pictures that God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah that paint an idea of how Israel had rejected him, how Judah had turned their back on him, and how they were full of idolatry and wickedness and perversity. The first eight verses reflect on an unfaithful wife. In fact, this is an image that God uses all throughout the Old Testament. And he even draws on that very image in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 when when Paul describes marriage as a union between Christ and the church. Same image, the image of a faithful husband in God, in Christ, and and a bride that he wed, that he drew out of slavery and sin and brought into a covenant relationship. That's exactly what God did when he brought Israel out of Egypt, restored them from slavery, gave them a good land. And what did the people of Israel do? They were unfaithful to him as a wife. They committed spiritual adultery on God. They turned from worshiping God himself and God alone to worshiping all sorts of idols. And these are just a, this is just a sampling of the imagery that Jeremiah is going to paint throughout his prophecies about the people of Israel and their spiritual adultery. Not only an unfaithful wife, but he describes them as a broken cistern. 
Notice this in verse 9. Therefore I contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. What such a thing? Verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Image is this, that the people of Israel, they had a God. And boy, did they have a God. They had the only God. The only God that could ever raise plagues upon Egypt. The only God that could ever rescue millions from slavery. The only God that could ever part the Red Sea. The only God that could ever provide for millions in the wilderness for 40 years. The only God that could actually speak into human existence and give us a law. The only God that could raise up prophets. The only God that could raise up kings. The only God that could raise up leaders and actually speak to them and invest in them. That was the God the people of Israel had. That was the God the people of Judah had. And what God says is you had the one true God and you exchanged me and my glory for a God who was not. It's the image of a broken cistern. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever imagined taking wonderful, pure, clean water and taking a bowl and breaking the bowl and taking that wonderful, pure, clean water and pouring it into a broken bowl. Ever done that? Now, I've broken plenty of bowls, broken plenty of plates. I happen to be one of the klutziest persons that I have ever met. My wife will affirm that. I can't tell you the number of plates that I break just simply putting them from the dishwasher into the cabinet. Don't know why, I'm not trying to be in a hurry, but I've broken plenty of stuff. But you know what happens when I break stuff? I throw it away. Because it is useless. You know what the people of Israel are? What God accuses them of being? He says, you have taken my glory, me and my wonder and my majesty, and you've exchanged me for something broken and useless when you have engaged in idolatry. Other images that God uses in the book of uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. A plundered slave. Someone who has nothing to offer. You have avoided me. The picture there is that the people of Israel had a God that they could count on. By the way, if you go back and read through the Old Testament at the number of ways God rescued the people of Israel when their situation seemed hopeless, Gideon, David, Samuel, Saul, the other judges, God came through time and time again when it appeared like there was no hope. You know what the people of Israel decided to do in Jeremiah's day and before then? Hey, God, we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to try to find out what you want from us. We're going to go make a treaty with another nation. We're going to sign an alliance. We're going to ask Egypt to help us. We're going to ask Babylon to help us. We're going to ask somebody else to help us. We're going to trust in someone else, a plundered slave. The picture is that Israel, that the people of God, had rejected God's right to help them and had sought somebody else to help them. Here are other pictures. A stubborn animal. Ever had an animal that wouldn't do what you wanted it to do? Yeah. You ever had a child? Well, we're going to get to that one in a moment. Stubborn animal. An animal that refused to obey its master. A degenerate vine. A vine that didn't produce 
something that it was supposed to produce, a vine that, that was supposed to produce wine, grapes that would turn into wine. But God accused the people of Israel of being a degenerate vine, a wild vine, producing not what it was supposed to produce. How about this one, verse 22 of chapter 2, a defiled body. Notice this, though you wash yourself with lye, and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Here's what God is accusing the people of Israel of. You have sinned, you have marred your flesh, you have put dirt on your flesh, you have put stain on your flesh, and no matter how much soap you use, no matter how much lie you use, you cannot wipe your stain off of yourself. But you're trying. You're attempting to. You're doing all of the outward things to try to be clean before me, but you are helpless. You're a defiled body, and you cannot be clean unless you're clean by me. Uh, a seventh picture that God talks about is, is the picture of a wild animal in the desert. Verse 23 actually describes a camel running here or there. In other words, not knowing where it's supposed to go. Not knowing where it's supposed to go right or left. Not knowing where the water is in front of it or behind it. It just decides to run on. Run wherever. Run to whoever. Run whenever. Not obedient, wild. The next picture is of a donkey in heat, which is a disgusting image. In fact, in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there are some very vulgar, if you will, images that God uses to describe the wickedness and the idolatry of the people of Israel. An image of unrestrained passion. Instead of seeking after God and pursuing God's righteousness, the picture is of an animal that cannot restrain its sexual urges. And God says to Israel, this is who you are. This is what you're doing. You are turning from me and going going after all of these other things that will bring you no hope, no peace, and no forgiveness. A disgraced thief. Here's another one, incorrigible children. That's how God describes the people of Israel. Ever had an incorrigible child? A child that absolutely would not, without any question, obey or listen. They were just mean. They were hateful. They were unrighteous. There's hardly anything more difficult than a child that just won't go right when they're supposed to go right and insists on going left just because they think going left is the right thing to do. Even though you know going right is the right thing to do when going left is not the right thing to do. Did you catch that? Did you follow that? People of Israel were incorrigible. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't do what God wanted them to do. They were rebellious. Another image is that they're prisoners of war. They would be put to shame by trusting in their foolish alliances. Say, wow, maybe that's why God promised such terrible destruction. I would advise you and encourage you to read that chapter on your own again and read all the ways that God sets an image up of the people of Israel and their failures and their folly and their sinfulness and their idolatry and their wickedness and you're sitting here and you're listening and you're saying Whew, man I I'm glad Jeremiah was talking to the people of Israel I'm so glad Jeremiah was talking to a group of people that lived 2,500 years ago I don't think he's talking to us don't be so fast there are several ways in which we embrace and embody some of these very pictures and images in our own lives. How about this one? False theology. Do you realize that if you, do, you may not bow to a false god, you may not get down on your knees and pray to Baal or Asherah, some of the gods that the people of Judah and the people of Israel bowed to, but when we abide by false theology, here's what we do. We say that God does not have a right to speak truth into our existence. We're going to ignore His truth and do what we want. Francis Schaeffer described it this way. He said, whenever the church of Jesus Christ turns away from the living God and His propositional truth... She is playing the harlot. 
Meaning that when we are willing to abide by a theology that says, when God says this is wrong, we say no, this is right. When we do that, that is false theology, it is idolatry, and it is wicked. And let me just tell you something, folks. There are many people and many pastors and many churches that are embracing false theology out of a desire to live in their own sinful, rebellious ways. Let me remind us of something as we work through these passages of Scripture and these chapters. We're going to see a lot of sins that take place in our nation, but we need to be very careful and very concerned that we are not just taking these sins and imaging them on a nation that is wicked. We need to remember that these sins and these images and these pictures were first described to a people that were supposed to be God's people. We need to look in our own hearts first. We need to make sure that there's no false theology in our lives. There's nothing standing in the way of us listening to what God says and obeying Him in His truth. Because if there is, there's a danger of us actually being idolatrous and having an image of God that's not really who God is. Another way that we abide by these types of sins, how about this useless activity? Think about this when the broken cisterns, this, this came home to me this week in my study. No, we may not have exchanged the glory of God for another idol. We may not have done that. But how much time, how much effort, how much energy do we actually put into things that are completely broken and completely useless? I'm going to meddle for just a minute. I'm not going to meddle because I'm trying to convict you. I'm going to meddle because I experienced some conviction. A friend of mine hosts a podcast. On his podcast, he interviewed a friend of his, not a friend, an author of a book, who was talking about many of the ways that we actually allow our time to be destroyed and wasted doing things that are absolutely unimportant. How many times do, do we pick up a phone or we pick up a television or we turn something on or we listen to something that is absolutely useless? It's pointless. It's not beneficial. It's not remotely helpful. It's not spiritually in, in, invigorating at all. And guess what? We can find ourselves wasting hours and hours and hours in things that are useless. You know what we may have done? We may have actually replaced the role that God is to be in our lives as Lord and Master of all our moments for things that are useless. We have to be careful that we're not guilty of idolatry in that sense. Here's another one, fruitless cleaning. How many times have you made a bargain with God? God, I'll do better this week. God, I'll read your Bible one more, one more minute. God, I'll pray just a little bit longer. God, I'll actually go to church. I'll go to church. I will actually register for church at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. And I'll make sure to be there in, in the church service because I know I've sinned against you and here's what I know I need to do. I need to clean myself a little bit. I need to make myself right. I need to bargain with you and make sure, God, that you forgive me of my sin and I'm going to do something good so that you'll forgive me of my sin. Let me tell you something, folks. We cannot clean ourselves. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. There's no bargain you can make with God that God will somehow allow you to wash your own sin away. It's fruitless and it is folly. We cannot cleanse our own sins. Only God, through the person of Jesus Christ, can wash our sins away. And the only way God does wash our sin away is when we bow in humility and repentance before Him. How about this one? Insecure infrastructures. Here's another way that we abide by idolatry. How many of you are putting your hope in something else besides God? 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. You know what I find myself so guilty of so often? I find myself guilty of seeking security in a place that is insecure. Some of you are guilty of seeking security. Some of us are guilty of seeking security in a bank account, in a job, in a person, in a relationship. Some of us are guilty of seeking security in a family. Some of us are guilty of seeking security in an alliance. Some of us are guilty of seeking security in a political party or a politician. Our hope is in what might happen in November. Boy, I hope not, because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure that either choice is the greatest of choices that we have in front of us. But sometimes we're guilty of longing for security in something exterior. You know what God said to the people of Israel? You look out and think you need an alliance with Egypt, or you need an alliance with Babylon, or you need an alliance with Assyria, and you have committed spiritual adultery with them. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to find yourself in judgment as a result tell you something, folks. The only security that we have is in a relationship with a holy, loving, living God. We need to heed the warnings of the pictures of perversity and idolatry. Say, Pastor, you've really encouraged me in the last 15 minutes. I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I mentioned to my wife earlier this week, I said, hey, will you pray for me over the next few weeks? Because these are not easy messages to preach. This is some hard stuff. This is some convicting stuff. Some stuff I've had to deal with with God in my own heart and in my own life. But there is some good news. There is a response we can give. Here's the response. We can return to the Lord and receive His forgiveness. I'll tell you some good news. God did not look at the people of Israel and say it's hopeless. It's pointless. It's fruitless. There's nothing left. God looked at the people of Israel over and over and over again, even as he gave messages of judgment and full and furious judgment to Jeremiah. And he said, but there's an opportunity, there's a privilege, there's a plan, there's a purpose if you'll repent. If you'll turn from your sin, if you'll turn to me, then I'll give you a chance of redemption and rescue. I won't destroy you, I won't wipe everything out. Notice chapter 3. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Man, what a, what a powerful image there. Some of us read that and we're, we're troubled by the terminology and the language. In fact, in chapter 3, 16 times in chapter 3, God uses the word shuv, which is the Hebrew word for return. It's the, the word that's also used for repent, 16 times. In the entire book, God uses the word repent through the prophet Jeremiah 90 times, but 16 come in chapter 3. The image is that we're to return to God. And this picture that God starts off with is a picture of a wife that's been put away and then that wife is not allowed to come back to her husband. Some of us read that and we're like, man, that, that sounds very patriarchal. That sounds hateful. That sounds mean-spirited. Why in the world would that be a law in the Old Testament? Well, here's why it would be a law in the Old Testament. It was actually a way to protect women. Because if a husband could just put away a wife and give that wife to somebody else, and then that other guy put away a wife and, and give her back to the first husband, then all that does is make a woman property. It makes a woman less than. It's actually a way to elevate marriage and elevate women in that day. But here was the point. 
If you went away and became married to another man, you couldn't return to your first husband. God's image of the people of Israel is the image of a woman, his image of a wife who had been unfaithful, who had rejected him, who had committed spiritual adultery. And God is saying, would you return to me? But you know what God does? God gives an invitation for repentance. Verse 14, verse 13, Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among the foreigners under every green tree. But you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I will restore you if you'll repent. If you will turn to me, if you will come back, I will accept you. God is saying, even though a law says that, I, that that should not happen in a nation and among a people and among a family, I will do that because I love you and because I want your repentance and I want your forgiveness. Verse 15, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. Verse Chapter 3, verse 15, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. They shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Now, there is much more in that paragraph than we can unpack in the few short minutes that we have remaining. But there is an encouragement there. There's a picture of hope. Jeremiah looks out through the judgment that is coming, knowing that the people of Judah are going to reject God's right to rule over them. He looks out past that. He looks out past their return from exile. He looks out even beyond that to when God is going to restore the houses of Judah and Israel together. The northern tribes of the kingdom of Israel that were separate from God, that had already been judged, that had already been sent, been sent among the nations, that had already been destroyed. God's going to restore them back, bring them back to Jerusalem. And guess who's going to take advantage of the joy of the relationship of the people of Israel with God again? The nations are. God looked out through Jeremiah and said, If you'll repent, you'll get to experience this goodness and this wonder and this joy and this return to me. But what does repentance look like? How do we describe repentance? It was asked in a Sunday school class of children once to define repentance. And a little boy raised his hand and he said, Repentance is being sorry for your sins. Not a bad definition. But a little girl in the class knew a little bit better than the little boy knew. And she raised her hand and said, Please, sir, it is being sorry enough to quit. Your sins. Folks, when God puts His finger on a sin in our life, when God takes a flashlight in His holiness and He identifies an area of idolatry or an area of selfishness or an area of wickedness or an area of depravity, it is not enough for us to just bow and say, God, I'm so sorry. I, I, I won't do that again. I, I, I promise I won't be that way ever again. I, I promise... I promise, I promise, and those promises are fruitless and faultless and, 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 and problematic. No, it's being sorry enough to recognize that these are sins and that we turn from them and turn to the living God. Repenting is turning back to God, rejecting a life of sin and a life of unrighteousness and a life of wickedness. 
me tell you something. We saw that early in March when Addison put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ and turned from her sins. She said, I'm done with rebelling against God. I'm turning to Christ. I'm trusting Him. And she was baptized last week. We saw that today in the baptism of Ari when in July she put her faith and trust in Jesus. She was willing to turn from her sin and turn to Christ in a relationship with Him. She was willing to turn from Him. And we pictured that, we described that in the ordinance of baptism. There's some other good news. A, a gentleman who's been attending worship here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church Convicted of his sins this past week. Put his faith and trust in Jesus just in the last few days. He turned from his unrighteousness and turned to Christ. Why? Because God offers us an opportunity to turn to him in repentance. How do we do that? How do we repent? How do we give up our sins? How do we lay aside our unrighteousness? Well, first we have to see what it is and see where it's going to lead. Tell you something, folks, if you look out at the sinfulness that dwells within your heart, let me assure you that it will end in destruction. If you are willing to hold on to unrighteousness and wickedness, it will destroy your family, it will destroy your character, it will destroy your Christian witness, and it might end up destroying your life. Over and over and over again, we see in the lives of those who claim to be followers of Jesus or in the lives of those who are absolutely unrighteous that their sin will lead them to utter destruction. That's what God promises in chapter 4. And Lord, Lord knows we need to heed those warnings. We need to acknowledge those pictures. And if God has put His finger on an area in your life or an area in my life, then we don't need to hold on to it. We don't need to say, no, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to turn to God. We need to be willing to confess that to Him. If we've set up an idol or if we have set up security in something else, we need to be willing to turn to Him. What does it look like? It looks like acknowledging that you're a sinner confessing that sin before God and being willing to turn away from it. It's a 180 degree turn. The idea of return in the book of Jeremiah is not just, not just simply I agree with God about what he says about my sin. It is actually changing direction and moving back to what God wants. And the people of Israel, the people of Judah, unfortunately, heard Jeremiah preach day after day, week after week, year after year, and they did not repent. Pardon was available, but they weren't willing to repent. I heard a story about a murderer who was sentenced to death. The murderer's brother went to the governor of the state in which he existed. He, he, the governor owed him some favors, and he begged for a pardon for his brother who was on a death sentence in that particular prison. And the governor listened to the murderer's brother and gave him a pardon. And his brother went to visit his murderer brother in jail. He had that pardon stuck in his pocket. And he sat down across from his brother and he said this, What would you do if you were pardoned? His brother said, If I was pardoned, I would get out of jail. I would go to the judge's house and I would murder him. And then after I went to the judge's house, I would... Go to the witness who put me in here, and I would murder him too. The brother stood up, walked away from the prison with the pardon in his pocket. There is no repentance. 
There is no pardon without being willing to turn from sin and turn to God. If you're watching, if you're listening, if you're hearing, let me beg of you. If God's at work in your heart, if He's convicting you, if He's drawing you, don't let today go by without turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Christian, if you're under the sound of my voice in this room or watching by whatever means you're watching or listening, and God has put His finger on an area of sinfulness in your life or shown a light of holiness on an area of sinfulness, let God have it. Confess it and repent of it. Because we do not want to experience the full and furious wrath of God's judgment. Stand with me, if you will, as we close our worship service. If you feel the need to respond, to come and repent, to pray for somebody who needs repentance, or to trust in Jesus as Savior, feel free to do so. If it's in the room, fantastic. If it's through social media or Facebook, let us know. Reach out to us. Let us know what's going on in your life, and we'll tell you how you can experience the saving grace of a God who receives those who repent. Father, we come to you in this moment awed, humbled, saddened by the fury of your wrath and your hate for sin. Lord God, sin destroys. Idolatry will destroy us. Wickedness and depravity and seeking what we cannot find outside of you in something else will destroy us. Forgive us. And Lord God, grant to us the privilege of experiencing repentance. Lord, in my life, in the life of Wilkesboro Baptist Church, in the life of those under, my, under the sound of my voice, life of those who are watching in their living rooms, or on their smartphones, Father, grant repentance. Show us where our sinfulness is that we may turn from it and turn to you. Lord, if there's one who is holding on to unrighteousness and, and driving themselves away from a relationship with you, Heavenly Father, will you bring them today, this moment, to a place of surrender and repentance and turning to you and you alone. Father, we thank you that you'll accept us when we repent. We put our hope and our trust in you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 